Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, bail reform, Rikers Island, the blindfold law, how none of it was addressed in the new state budget. Plus Mosbia, a kosher soup kitchen feeding the hungry at Passover. And a new home and a new production for Brooklyn's Target Margin Theater. Hi and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford. Have you seen the Google Doodle today? It features the renowned poet, author, and activist Dr. Maya Angelou, who would have been 90 years old today. But she passed away two weeks after I moved to New York in May of 2014. Dr. Angelou had been a great inspiration to me as a woman and writer. And as your social news feeds will surely let you know today, I am not alone in that truth. Hers was not an easy loss to bear, but she lived a long life worth learning from and reflecting on. The same could be true for Winnie Madikizela Mandela, who died Monday this week. A ferocious South African woman, an activist and politician, Mandela was no stranger to controversy or victory. She was frequently referred to as Mother of the Nation, which, if you ask me, doesn't sound like a title people hand out lightly. I mention these two women today against the backdrop of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., because I've been thinking about loss. What do we lose when people we admire die? A death can certainly incite hopelessness, and it almost always hurts, but what do we lose? What I've come to accept is that when my heroes pass on to whatever does or doesn't come next, I haven't been abandoned. If anything, a death is a message. When our leaders die, whether that death be natural or not, what they leave us is something to live up to, something to remember fondly, and a charge to complete the work. I think that's our job now. And we have Maya, Winnie, and Martin to thank for the shoes we should all be looking to fill in one way or another. Our first conversation coming up next. Like fighting poverty or fixing income inequality, we hear the phrase criminal justice reform so often that it loses its day-to-day on-the-ground meaning for people's lives. And the reason we hear it so often is because these reforms rarely happen, thanks to a political system clogged with inefficiency and, sadly, indifference. For example, how well did this past weekend's New York State budget deal address issues like bail reform, the right to a speedy trial, and Rikers Island? I'll let you take a wild guess, but for actual answers, let's hear from Gabriel Sayeg, the co-founder and co-executive director of the Catal Center for Health Equity and Justice. Jarrett Murphy of City Limits hosted the show yesterday. Here's that conversation. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, the budget that was passed in the past week um, did not have a lot of what criminal justice reform advocates wanted to see in it. What was it you wanted to see that was not there? Yeah, it would have been great to see what the governor had said uh, would be in it at the start of the year, which was a real robust reforms to pretrial practices. Uh, Bail reform was the issue that rose to the top, and that's one that we were all fighting for. But there's also speedy trial and discovery issues, and the governor spoke about that at his State of the State address. Um, It was bail that rose to the top over the course of the budget period up and through the end of March, but none of those items made it, nor did much of anything else related to criminal justice. And so it was a very disappointing uh, budget process in that regard. Talk about each of those issues a little bit more. Bail reform, we've heard a lot about bail as what is imposed on folks to get them to come 
to trial when they're accused of a crime. If you can't pay it, you stay behind bars. Speedy trial and discovery, how do those fit into the criminal justice reform conversation in New York? Yeah, with discovery, most New Yorkers may not know that if you're charged with a crime, uh, you may not know what evidence the prosecution has against you until the day the trial begins. And as a result of that, your defense can't prepare an adequate uh, defense for you, and it delays the process substantially. And a lot of advocates call it the blindfold law. Uh, because of the way that New York's discovery laws are set up, you're blindfolded until you actually get to trial. And that's just a, a travesty of justice on its own right. But it has really grave implications for defendants across our state. And so many people linger inside of the criminal justice system a lot longer than they ever need to, simply because they don't know the evidence that the state has against them. So discovery reform would fix that. With speedy trial, we have a problem where, particularly in New York, people can be stuck in jail, um, or if they've been able to bail themselves out, they can be out, but their trial can take upwards of three, four, five years to ever happen, if at all. If people, we think about the right to a speedy trial, the Sixth Amendment, we think that, well, you know, there's a, uh, if I get charged, I'll, I'll have my trial fairly quickly. There was actually a poll that was done and uh, recently that asked New Yorkers across the state, how long do you think it is too long, you know, to wait for your trial? Most New Yorkers said, well, two, three, four months. You'd be surprised to know that on average in, in uh, the Bronx, for instance, it can take upwards of three years to get your trial on a misdemeanor charge. So the story of Khalif Browder. Khalif went to, to court over 35 times before his case was dropped. And that's a speedy trial issue. They, uh, there's no real hard rules that force the court to make the trial happen in an in a appropriate amount of time. And so the solution here is to close those loopholes and ensure that defendants have access and their right to a speedy trial. Why did these important-sounding reforms, logical-sounding reforms, why did they not make the final budget? What, what happened, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. One, there was not an effort on the part of the governor to make these reforms as sort of this or nothing. I mean, the governor did put forward some reforms. There was mixed reception to that, but to their credit, they did uh, signal later in the budget session that they were open to changing some of those things and improving them, which was a big step, and they should, they, we recognize that on their part. But there was never a moment where there was a line drawn in the sand that said, if these things aren't included, nothing is going to move forward. For a lot of criminal justice reform advocates and for those of us that are working on these issues and for the people that have been stuck on Rikers and many others who have been processed through the system and their families, that seems hard to digest because you have on a daily basis here in the city of New York and across the state really serious grave injustices happening predominantly to poor people and people of color. And those need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed immediately. And so it's, that's one aspect here. There was no line drawn in the sand. The second is the Senate. Um, the, both the governor and the assembly put forward proposals, and we can debate the particulars of those proposals, but the Senate had nothing. They had indicated that they were open to talking about it, but when it came down to it, they really weren't. Uh, the Senate configuration as it is with the way that we have the, the, the Republicans and the, and the Democrats and so forth, you, you've done a lot of work on that. That remains a real impediment to reform, and so the Senate didn't want to do anything except increase penalties, um, which, of course, a lot of reformers were saying, like, no, that's certainly not anything that we're going to support. And I think the final thing here is really that the, um, uh, the, the aspects of reform that seem common sense to so much of us when we hear about these problems in the criminal justice system get caught up in this political um, drama of Albany, and they become far more complicated than they really need to be. I don't think any New Yorker really wants somebody sitting in jail for years at a time before they're ever even uh, brought to trial, before they've even been convicted of anything. 
People don't want to pay for that, taxpayers. Most New Yorkers, when polled, say that they don't think that that's right. The vast majority of New Yorkers who are polled believe that we should have bail reform in particular here in the state, but including also discovery and speedy trial reform. But once things get up in Albany, it is a mess up there. And common sense, you know, this is the only common sense issue that gets lost in that, uh, in that world. So many do. And I think that's a factor here as well. So in the days since the budget was passed, Governor Cuomo has gone back to this line of argument in his opposition to Mayor de Blasio, saying, chiding him for his timeline of 10 years to close Rikers Island. And the mayor has said, look, we can't do that unless the state passes reforms like bail reform, speedy trial discovery. Um, which of the two is right? Is it possible for the city to move faster toward closing Rikers without those reforms? Or does the governor need to kind of put up or shut up? Yeah, they're both right and they're both wrong here. Uh, the governor does need to put up or shut up here. We can't talk about expediting a 10-year timeline and not get things like bail reform passed. You've got to do it. There's simply no way to expedite the timeline without reforming bail, without reforming speedy trial, without fixing discovery practices here in the city of New York and statewide. On the other end, there's other things that can happen here at the city level that can and should occur that the, that the mayor can do. Now, the mayor's moving some stuff forward. That's good. We want to see that done more quickly. Uh, we want that process to be done as uh, swiftly as, as possible. And so both of them have got to come together and figure out a plan to get this thing done. It's really, really a, um, uh, I don't know, what's the word for it? It's frustrating, to say the least, to have two of the most powerful elected officials in the state of New York, two white guys, battling it out over who's more progressive and whatnot. And daily, people in the city of New York, and particularly in Rikers and the criminal justice system, are being ground up, and, and injustices are perpetuating, and all sorts of things that are going on that really need to get fixed. And so, ideally, what would happen here is that they would come together, say, look, we got to get something done here that's going to fix these problems, because people's lives literally are at stake, and let's get it done as quickly as we can. And for both of them, you need to do things here in the city, you need to do things at the state level to make that possible. One of the things the city has done fairly recently is identify the sites where it will increase or expand capacity to take the prisoners who are inmates or detainees who are not on Rikers anymore uh, once Rikers is shut down. The only new site is in the Bronx, and there's been a controversy about where the city has chosen to, to cite that and whether the neighborhood wants it, whether it's going to harm the neighborhood. What do you feel about that discussion, that debate? Yeah, I think each of the places where there's going to be a jail, the community needs to be involved in, the, in that uh, process to determine what things should look like there. Every community needs to be involved here. Um, that's going to be a really critical factor here. And it sounds like with the Bronx that there wasn't the kind of engagement that there needs to be, and hopefully that can be rectified. For the concerns around what happens when jails go into a community, I mean, not far from here in downtown Brooklyn is the uh, Brooklyn Detention House, and across the street is a Barney's, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, development happening. It has certainly not slowed down uh, the, the development and gentrification of downtown Brooklyn in any way. Um, what we're talking about here, though, in, a, in the broader scheme of things, is the transformation of the justice system and the city as we know it. We're not just talking about the justice system when we talk about closing Rikers. We're talking about transforming our city, making a fairer and more just city. And that's not just about the local jails. It's going to be about housing and mental health access and education and all the rest. Communities have got to be at the table for that. All the communities, like whether we're talking about where jails may be cited or we're talking about the communities whose many members have cycled through the jails that exist today, really do need to be at the table to ensure that those voices have an active role in determining the outcomes here. In one of your earlier lives, you uh, talked a lot about um, uh, disparities in arrests around marijuana. Obviously, part of this problem is not what occurs once people are arrested and waiting for processing and where they're going to spend their pretrial days. But on the arrest side, there's been consuming debate about whether the city has done enough to kind of roll back a punitive regime of arresting people for relatively small amounts of marijuana. Where do you think the city is in terms of uh, progress from what was before 
Mayor de Blasio came in and what you think the ideal is. Where, where are we on that spectrum? Yeah, with regards to marijuana arrests, those arrests have dropped. That's a good thing. There's far fewer New Yorkers being arrested for marijuana possession in the city of New York today than there was five years ago or even three years ago. The problem is the racial disparities in the, in the remaining arrests have not shifted at all. You're far more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession if you're black and Latino in this city than you are if you're white. And for young men, who are the folks that get arrested the most, it's young white men who use marijuana at higher rates than do young men of color, and yet it's almost entirely young men of color being arrested for marijuana possession. Those racial disparities are endemic in the system that we have today. And that's where there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. It's where we need to see the de Blasio administration step up and do a lot more. Um, just yesterday, on a way to a meeting, uh, we saw a group of, I don't know, it was roughly 10 or 11 uh, NYPD officers detaining somebody on a, a fair beat, right? They, somebody had jumped a turnstile and they were being detained. That's not uncommon. As about, on the same day, I think one of our colleagues over at Vocal tweeted a similar picture of the very same type of thing happening somewhere else in the city. These types of arrests, the wasted amount of time and effort and energy and resources that NYPD expends on low-level offenses like fair beating and so forth, that's got to be rolled back and transformed. And we haven't seen enough of that yet, really, to make the kind of transformational changes that we need to see. So as we come toward the end of our talk, uh, one thing that's occurred to me is that those low-level arrests, broken windows and, and drug possession and the like, they generate a lot of the traffic into and out of Rikers. But in terms of folks there at any moment, a lot of them are actually accused of more serious crimes. And sometimes in these conversations, there's this dividing line between sort of violent criminals and everybody else. Uh, is that part of the conversation that needs to occur, too, talking about violence, people accused of violence, and politicians being ready to see more of those folks awaiting trial outside with, with the rest of us. Yeah, if we're going to end mass incarceration, we have to have a real conversation about violence, what we mean by it, how it's currently um, established inside of the law. I mean, Khalif Browder right, was charged with stealing a backpack, which under the New York law is a violent felony offense. There are things that can and should be done to ensure that we're not putting people inside of cages, right? We can hold people accountable and achieve public safety without dehumanizing people in what are otherwise torture chambers like Rikers. And that conversation is desperately, desperately needed here. With regards to the bail question in particular, there are ways to keep the community safe and make sure that people come back to court so we can achieve both safety and justice without encumbering people with these enormous bails that they cannot pay, without uh, subjecting people to undue supervision. Those, those balances can be struck, but we need to get away from the more sort of um, uh, uh, sometimes vulgar even political debates about those types of issues and get down to like how we achieve those ends together as a community. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're at about the halfway point through the eight days of Passover, when observant Jews give up things like bread, rice, corn, pasta, pizza, beer, whiskey, and vinegar, just to name a few. Most folks don't go hungry during the holiday, of course. Matzah may be unleavened, but it's hardly unfilling. But there are plenty of people in this city who, far too much of the time, don't have enough to eat, including some Jews, which is why someone like our next guest does what he does. Alexander Rappaport is the ex executive director of Mosbia Soup Kitchen Network, which serves more than two million meals a year. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me. First of all, can you just tell me, do you guys do a Seder at Mosbia? Yes. This is the second year we actually did a Seder is two days, so mm -hmm. two nights, so we actually did it the second year. Wow. How did it go? It went very well. We had... 
uh, hired a rabbi to do the Seder part, and we hired a, um, a singer to do a little bit of the songs. Wow. And then there was staff there till late at night, kind of serving everybody. And, like, all the time, we we had staff and volunteer serve lots of guests who, mm-hmm. up to the last minute, hoped to be invited to other people's Seder, right. but in the last minute weren't invited and ended up coming to a soup kitchen for a Seder. Oh, wow. That's, like, really lovely for you guys to have that for people to engage in. I, re- I really, really love that idea. That's it. Like, Passover is a holiday that, you know, as we just mentioned, you give a lot of things up, including full food. How does that gel with the mission of a soup kitchen? <laughs> Right. So, and, and what happens is throughout the year, from whatever we do, Passover is about 20% of all the food we do. Wow. Because there's so many people, when it comes to a holiday, that find themselves on a tighter budget than all year round. Right. The kids are home from school. It means breakfast and lunch that you got from school. You now take from your own budget. Right. The, the idea that there's other things that the holiday requires makes the cost... The, oh, yeah. the budget of the family go up, and that puts strain on food, mm-hmm. plus the fact that you'd like to do nice holiday meals, right. and that makes our lines go 300%. Wow, 300%? Well, you guys have seen a lot of growth from, you know, what I read. When you guys started, you were doing about 160-plus meals a week, and now you're up to 2,000 a week. Like, what does that do for an organization to have that much usage? Yes, so, so it definitely takes it takes a toll even on the walls of the of the places we rent. I mean, right. everything just the 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 volume just oh, yeah. just it takes wear and tear and everything. Mm-hmm. But we have lots of volunteers. We have a pool of a couple of thousand volunteers. We have lots of donors who help us get the food out there. And yes, we went from the first night serving eight people to now serving thousands of people every week. And families, we so we there's a difference between the sit-in meal Mm -hmm. and the meals people take home packages of raw food that they could make at home. And huge increases a lot in where the mothers come and pick up a package that they could serve their children at home. That sort of and, and over there is where we are able to give just lots of fresh produce, a little bit of chicken or fish and things like that that right. people can make meals at home. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love Talk to me a little bit more about your volunteers. You guys have so many. What are they like? So what, what's the, nice about must be, I like to say, we happen to be kosher, but mm-hmm. we have volunteers from all walks of life. We have our our clients are from are very diverse, so it's kind of a real Brooklyn thing. Yeah. It's it's a, so we have two locations in Brooklyn, one in Queens, mm-hmm. and we have we use about a thousand hours of volunteers a week. Wow! And then there is the you know the minimal s- staff that we need to have mm-hmm. a little bit in the office, a little bit in the kitchen, and a little bit of the sites, right. and the. There's enormous amount of food, and a, and a slow week we put in and out fifty thousand pounds of food. In a slow uh, week, yeah. fifty thousand pounds. Uh, yes. Wow, that is just so much 
work, which makes me think, you know, and I used to work in nonprofits. That's actually my background. That's some of the first work when I went into um, the working world. That was some of the first places that I worked were in soup kitchens and homeless shelters and things like that. And one of the things that I know to be true, but I know a lot of other people don't necessarily realize all the time, is that a soup kitchen does not just need donations of food. There are a lot of things that go into making an organization work, a nonprofit org, no matter what they're putting back out there. Um, what are some of the resources that you guys, I think, or I guess, just need in general? Yes, it's a very interesting point. You spoke about the Seder. Mm-hmm. Now, if the Seder happened to be happened on the weekend, right? It was Saturday, um, Friday night and Saturday night. So imagine just the staff keeping them up till late at night mm-hmm. you know just and it's and to some of them it's their own holiday right right so just being fair to them means paying them for what it is to be there on a holiday mm-hmm. but then there is we pay we pay rent we actually buy a lot of food wow. we we pay the staff we pay rent and there is a lot of what's called in order to give people with dignity it's very easy to give some cheap food and, right. and, and get away with it, so to speak. But if you want right. to give people food that brings them, gives them that half hour of dignity where they're giving fresh, delicious, nutritious food served in a way that gives them their dignity, it, it, it's, it doesn't boil down to wow. food only. Well. I think people will listen to this and want to help out. Sounds like you guys have a fantastic mission. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. An old theater company finds a new home in Brooklyn. Since 1991, Target Margin Theater has been providing multicultural stage presentations around New York City. But back in November, they moved into their first permanent space, the Doxy Theater in Sunset Park. Their new play at the Doxy is called Pay No Attention to the Girl, a fresh take on the classic The One Thousand and One Nights. And it's a New York Times critic's pick. Here to tell us what they've done with Sherazade and to describe their new home is the founder and artistic director, David Herskovitz. Thanks for being here. And associate artistic director, Mo Youssef. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? How are you feeling? <laughs> fantastic? Yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah. fantastic. Sure. Fantastic. David, give me a little history about the theater. Oh, sure. I mean... Uh, Not the theater in general, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, back in ancient times. Um, <laughs> the, you know, I'll tell you, I... I started this company alone, but mm-hmm. almost immediately lots of other people got involved. Right. So it's been a, a group thing all the way. Mm-hmm. And it's really because there was a kind of work that I was excited about doing, and I felt like there's no place for this work, <laughs> for me to do this work, um, so i got to make my own place. Right. And that is what we have pushed and pushed and grown and grown a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. We came to Brooklyn almost 20 years ago, and we were here in Fort Greene. And we grew and grew a little more, and then more artists got involved, and the audience got bigger. And as you know, as you just said, just in this last year, we we moved out to Sunset Park. Welcome to, to BK. Yeah, Welcome man. to the Brooklyn Fam. Like Can you tell me what? How did Target Margin Target Margin get its name? Oh boy, oh boy, that out of my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
You know, one of my answers to that question always is like, well, what do you think it means? Yeah. But I, I won't torture you with that. But um, there's a whole uh, video. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in a way, it's because I like to go at things artistically right. and also culturally and personally and socially mm -hmm. sideways. Yeah. And it means, like, is the target the thing right there? Or maybe it's going around to the margin, the stuff around right. the target that's going to actually get you home right. in the most mm -hmm. meaningful way. I like that. Come through, David. That's what I'm selling. Now, Mo, we understand that you actually are the one who came up with the idea for doing this show particularly. Can you talk to us about why that is, where that came from, how that fit with mm. the artistic mission? Mm. Yeah, I can try. Do your best. Um, <laughs> let's see. The I'm half Pakistani, I'm Pakistani American, mm -hmm. and those tales in particular were things that I was circling around for the last couple of years. And as I first started getting excited about them, I was talking with David because just the way that we work together and the way the company, sort of the philosophy of the company, is we just bring these things in, and um, it instantly it sort of clicked and connected. Like this just feels so much like a target margin um, exploration, right? right? We work on things for a number of years. We work on them in so many different ways, multiple productions, um, and that sort of mirrored the framework of The Thousand and One Nights, which are a myriad of stories, different storytellers, different perspectives, the transmission of those tales sort of mirroring our process uh, to create them. And then just culturally, they were very personal to me. Um, I, um, I have not really explored a lot of my own personal cultural heritage in the art that I made or with any of the companies I've worked with. And this seemed like a great opportunity to take that and embrace a whole different artist community in David's work and mm -hmm. push that forward. I love that. I so love it. Now, David, Ben Brantley in The Times says this about the production. It is surprisingly easy to follow the plots and characters within these stories framed by stories framed by stories. The ambiguity that pervades this production is deliberate and of a different order. Now, assuming Ben got it right, can you explain that a little bit? Oh, that, I'm so glad that you read that quotation because it's one of the things that makes me happiest in his response. You know, the storytelling is hard, and I want to make it clear, and yet... What's interesting about the material, and this is what Mo was saying, is that it's so layered. Like, right. where are the Thousand and One Nights from? Yeah. There's right. not an answer to that question. There's not right? an answer to that they're, question. They're from, uh, they're Arabic, they're Indian, they're South mm -hmm. Asian, they're Pakistani, they're Iranian and Persian, and on and on and on and on. And what do they mean? Mm -hmm. What a silly question, right? So right. those ambiguities are, we're trying to lay those open for people, and yet, at the same time, they're just great stories. Just telling the story. And you just want to tell a good story, right? Hear. Exactly. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I love that so much. Mo, people are going to want to come see this show. Yes. How do they do that? Oh, they, <laughs> they go online to targetmargin.org and they purchase a ticket or they call the office. Yeah. 718-398-3095. <laughs> I can we throw out my email. The show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you guys do. are very accessible is what yes. I'm hearing. And the show is going to be amazing. Hopefully I can come see it. I'm going to encourage others to come see it. This sounds amazing. Thank you guys so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank oh, you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. We'll for your have interest. you back soon. Let us know about all the shows. Cool. Tomorrow? Not tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be back tomorrow with a new media outlet called Cannabis Wire and a preview of the My True Colors Pride Awards and a new city program aimed at training apprentices for 21st century careers. I hope you'll join us again for 112BK. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, 
Pritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>